Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a teacher now, I guess at the end of my first year. I recently began teaching, but I've been a longtime coder as well. And I'm joined with my co-host. Now this is Kelly, Kelly Schuster Paredes. And uh, you know, I'm gonna about to say I'm almost, almost a real coder. I've been coding almost a year. Um, feeling a little bit more comfortable with coding. So if, if you're going to be almost a full-time teacher, I'm an almost full-time coder. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Well, we're joined by someone who's a lot of both. We have Meg Ray with us from uh, Cornell Tech. We met her at PyCon this past year. Hi, Meg. How are you? Hello. I'm great. How are you? We're doing well. It's a, it's a great uh, afternoon here in sunny South Florida. I know you're up in New York today, right? Yes, I am. We just got a heat wave and it's great. That's, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So um, we, Kelly and I met Meg at PyCon US in May of 2019. Meg was the keynote speaker for the Education Summit. Meg, can you tell us a little bit about your history with Python and teaching and computer science, just to kind of give folks a background of who you are and where you're coming from? Yeah, no problem. So I started out as a special education teacher and I still strongly identify as a special education teacher. I was working with adolescents, especially with all sorts of disabilities, but especially behavior and emotion disabilities, and loving my job. And at around the same time, I started learning Python on my own with my spouse. He dragged me to a Python meetup in New York City. I thought it would be really boring and that I was just appeasing him. Okay, I'll go one time to see what you do, sure. I wrote my, my first program that evening. I had a blast and I just kept going back and using it as a study time and a learning time. I went to PyCon for the first time in 2014 and took the tutorial through the carpentry. Kind of the rest is history. After that, I really wanted to share it with my students and I wanted to start teaching it. I found a school that had a software engineering and game design program that was required for all ninth graders. Somehow, I managed to get hired for the position. It was my dream job and I ran with it and I was really building my skills and learning a lot of the content as I went. And I ended up redesigning that course, incorporating Python, making the course more accessible for students with learning differences. And then after that, I got really excited about it. I wanted more kids to be able to experience computer science education. And so uh, I started developing curriculum, training other teachers, et cetera. And that's what I'm still doing. That's amazing. I think that's one of the things that really gave us this warm, fuzzy feeling inside was the fact that you were a teacher, you didn't know how to code, and you got into coding. And you weren't, I'm a science teacher by default. And I guess they kind of coexist science and technology. Mm -hmm. But for you to be uh, a special ed teacher and to go into to Python and to start coding, I just think that's amazing and, a, and a, a great inspiration to all teachers out there that anyone can do it if you if you want to do it. Absolutely. Yes. And when I go into schools and they try to identify teachers, Absolutely, math and science teachers are a great fit. All teachers are a great fit, like you said, but I always ask about the special ed teachers. I do think there's a natural fit there that people don't realize um, because special ed teachers are, we don't specialize in a certain subject area. We specialize in learning and development, how kids learn, and a lot of computer science is about developing those skills. 
And I don't know if we're going to go there quite yet, but maybe we can go there. I think that's one of the big things is how do they learn? Learning how to learn. And you hit that on the nail, you know, with the special education, that ability to think about your learning and applying that to to how you learn how to code. Well, before we get too much further, I'd love to cover wins of the week before we get uh, into the topic at hand, because it's honestly, it's one of my favorite parts of the podcast every week. So Meg, since you're our guest, we're gonna put you on the spot and make you go first. But the win of the week is something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom that you want to share with, with everyone. Okay, I have a great win of the week this week. I've been piloting a Raspberry Pi in a Box program it's a new curriculum, and there's been a lot of bumps along the way because there's so many logistics with Raspberry Pi. And this week, I was at a fifth grade technology classroom where it was implemented with four different sections of fifth graders, including fifth graders with disabilities and including emerging bilinguals. And every single section completed the light up a light and make it blink with Python not with scratch. Every single student was able to do that. And it just, they blew me away. That's such a huge win. That's so exciting. Sean, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to go last today. <laughs> <laughs> well, my win is, is actually a small thing. And, you know, maybe this is obvious for other teachers out there, but I was struggling earlier in the week with a project that we're doing right now. So we're coming to the end of the school year and the end of another quarter for our teaching program. And I usually keep the last two and a half weeks as time for a individual project for students. So they work in teams of two, but it's really a, a way for them to combine and apply a lot of the knowledge that they've acquired over the course of the quarter in a final project. And it's really by design open-ended so that students have an opportunity to be creative and be flexible. And we've had all sorts of great projects over the year from little robots and color changing umbrellas to handbags to video games. It's been really a lot of fun to put together. I don't know if it's the end of the, the year or this particular group of students, but I was getting a lot of questions. I was getting a lot of, Mr. Tiber, how do I do this? Mr. Tiber, how do I do that? Mr. Tiber, Mr. Tiber, Mr. Tiber. And I said, okay, I said, we're going to stop this because I'm not the only source of information. There's a wealth of information out there that you can use. So from now on, you get one question per day that you can ask. And I'm, and I'm being ruthless about it. You know, can I go to the bathroom? That's your question. <laughs> You're done. And it's really served two purposes, and it's been such a great thing to see. It's forced our students to look beyond me as a source of information because I do not know everything. So they're researching, they're looking at Google, they're finding books, they're asking each other, they're they're going to other sources, but the other thing it's forcing them to do is that they're able to make directive statements and declarative statements instead of questions to get what they want. And the process of restructuring their language into an alternate form other than a question is making them think about what they really want to understand. And it seems like they're getting to be able to solve their own, you know, solve their own problems and, and answer their own questions just by that process of having to eliminate questions from their available language. Yeah, and when Sean and I are going to make 3D printed questions so we can put in a fish jar and, and we're going to start promoting those <laughs> on our website, I think they have to use the 3D printed questions. That's a great win. I've seen it in action. It's a, it's a great little tidbit for any new teacher to use that. So my win of the week has been interesting. I'm also doing a, a learning as you go. We, every quarter we go into our maker space 
And we started our soldering unit and I tell them it's a pass or fail, it either lights up or it doesn't. So you have to get it right. And it's such a remarkable time because I teach in the process of skim scan and deep reading a pamphlet and there's no instruction given. They have to read the entire instruction manual in order to make a ladybug with eight LEDs and 12 resistors light up. No coding involved, but it's just a great skill. And to see the kids, they get so intent in soldering and they, they get into this zone and this pleasant, almost boring for a teacher, but pleasant Zen zone of soldering. And it's just a fun two days for us. So that's my win of the week. Always soldering time. So lots of good things going on. It sounds it sounds like we're all having a good week so far. So we're, <laughs> we're going to jump right in to some topics and just discuss you know, a couple of different things that have, have come to us as questions that we had, some things we wanted to chat over with you. So I guess to, to preface this, Meg, you gave the keynote speech at the Education Summit for, for PyCon US this year. One of the things that really struck Kelly and I was just how much you've accomplished in terms of the pedagogy of Python, right? The, the way that people learn it, the way that students can access information and integrate it into their own knowledge. A lot of the lessons that you were sharing in terms of here's what the research is showing, here's what the observation is providing, was confirming a lot of the things that I kind of had to discover for myself the hard way this year during the course of my first year of teaching. And so what we wanted to do is just start talking about that. Where did this, you mentioned that you applied for the role or the teaching position at the school with the ninth grade course in software engineering and game design. How did you get more into the research side of this and being able to really understand how students learn computer science and Python specifically? Yeah, so my first couple of years was just learning by trial and error and discovery, as you were mentioning. Then I signed up for a postgraduate certificate at Pace University in blended learning and teaching computer science. That's where I first started to look into the actual research. And now in my role at Cornell Tech, I've actually had the opportunity to participate in educational research, which I've loved and has been another learning curve for me. And I've been, the last few years, I've been attending which is the special interest group in computer science education of the ACM. And that's where all the education researchers who research computer science education go. So really, I can't take credit for a lot of that pedagogy because it's learning from that community and taking it in and seeing all the hard work that's been done in this area for decades now, actually. So and how did that how did you integrate that into your philosophy of teaching? You know, the interview that you had on Trinket was really great in terms of the philosophy that you expressed. Kelly, you had some thoughts on that one as well. That, that he, I, I think this is really more your question than mine, so I'm going to give like, it to you. Not, he was stealing my question. You see how that works? I... <laughs> Sorry, this is a lie. We keep this stuff on the air just to give people giggles. So yeah, no, I was reading that and I'm all about the pedagogy and the philosophy of education. I, I think together this year, Sean has, has also developed his own philosophy of education. And I, you said something in this article about sitting with confusion. And I don't know if you remember that, but I was like, wow. I'm totally going to use that again. Um, can you explain that sitting with confusion? Because we see it as computer science teachers. I know everyone out there is going to go, yeah. Can you just go ahead and explain that, though? Uh, yeah. So what I really meant is that I wanted students to practice 
not knowing to practice being uncomfortable and to gain the experience of productive struggle, which my students didn't always have the opportunity to do. At the time, I was teaching in a very underfunded public school in the South Bronx. And I don't get me wrong, I love public education. And there are so many teachers and educators doing great work in these schools. Um, but a lot of times, the students aren't given the same opportunities that better funded districts are for learning. So many of the students have been used to things like just writing down guided notes word for word, things like that. So explicitly teaching them about kind of, Sean, what you were talking about, how to do research, how to problem solve, um, and giving them a toolkit for that. And then also explicitly teaching about perseverance and problem solving and what that's like and normalizing it was really important. And the class sort of naturally became the, the freshman seminar in college, except for high school, where they, in addition to computer science, the focus was on learning collaboration skills, problem solving skills, all, all these different things that they needed for their other courses as well. And so I sort of independently just kind of came to that. And later on, when I had the opportunity to advise on the K-12 CS framework, which is really the foundation for computer science standards that are coming out in different states, they codified that as the computer science practices and really recognize some of those skills as core to CS education. And I love that. I'm actually in the middle of my summer reading on how to raise successful people. And in the first 40 pages, the author, Esther, well, well, just kick, I don't know how to say her name. I'm really, uh, Esther W. She says something about the whole idea of changing this model, this, this dysfunctional thing that sometimes happened in classroom. And I think we feel that as well, even in, in our independent school, that kids are not necessarily used to not having the answers. They know that they can go find it. And when they come into a place where they don't necessarily understand the vocabulary, they don't speak the language, they don't understand informational text. When they come in here, this is just a whole slew of ah happening and that sitting that those standards that we teach are not always the the computer science coding that people think it's actually just having to deal with life and and learning how to learn through life yes and some of the classrooms that i work in that are labeled advanced or gifted are the ones where the students need these skills the most exactly struggle with this the most yeah i agree I think we feel that too, and I and I think we get them we get them through a, to a point. It takes about our six weeks of of this this point for us, where they have that struggle, and then all of a sudden these light bulbs start coming on, and this feeling, this good feeling, and you're reminded every day from that six weeks on. Oh, this is what it feels like to teach coding to kids. <laughs> it's a good feeling when you see that that turn on with that confusion when they're comfortable with it. I definitely can being a product of the educational system, right? More so than I have been a teacher. I spent more time as a student than I ever has a, have as a, as a teacher. One of the things that struck me 
I was always that student that could perform the calculations in math class, right? Or I could structure the paragraph the way that the teacher taught you how to do it, right? So the concrete structured approach to producing an output was something that came very naturally for me. So I was labeled gifted for that. And then I got to my first job out of college and I was given a project to do. And I asked my my boss, what do you, what is this supposed to look like? What am I supposed to do? What do you want it to look like? And I'm thinking that he has the answer in his head. This is what it should be. And he said, how the hell should I know? Like, that's why I'm giving you the project. I want you to figure it out and I'm here to help you figure it out with me. But he's like, but there's no, there's no right answer here. There's no correct answer. There's the one that you develop with us together and we will get comfortable with that half-baked idea that you come up with and we'll turn it into a fully baked idea. And that, sat, that to me was such a different turning point in my outlook and my approach was that the majority of life, we don't have a correct answer that we're shooting for. We're usually shooting for what's the best answer or the best solution to this problem that could come from a range of solutions. So that's one of the things that I love about computer science now is that it's really what you make of it and it's how you create it. And I'm seeing there are certainly a large number of our students that once they start to realize that that's an, an, a possibility, that that's another way to think about how to solve problems and how to create things. It's not about the correct answer, it's about the best solution or the most creative or some new idea or new approach. They really start to light up and get excited about it. This episode of Teaching Python is brought to you by you, our listeners, through Patreon. If you'd like to become a supporter like Thomas Eckert, Brian Aachen from the Test and Code podcast, or Natasha Samalenko, you can help us out at patreon.com slash teachingpython. Give a few bucks. It really helps us out. Thanks. Back to the show. So question while we have the expert here. For special, special needs or special education, two separate things, obviously, bilingualism and English as a second language learners and special education. Do you, do you find there's a different way that you approach teaching these two different groups of students or do you kind of do the same thing? Well, because I'm not an expert in emerging bilingual or English language learner education, I tend to approach it similarly, but I think there's probably distinct approaches students could benefit from. Just real quick, for emerging bilingual students, there's research um, being done about translanguaging and literate programming at CUNY and Columbia that is very promising. For special education, I've done some research on approaches with my colleague Maya Israel. There's an approach that we like to call scaffolded constructivism. Computer science education, there's a very strong history of constructivist learning. We can read a lot of idealistic writing about open-ended problem-solving, inquiry-based learning, student-led learning. That's sort of the gold standard. So we thought about how do we get students to be able to participate in that rich kind of learning? We don't want to do away with direct instruction. Sometimes those are seen as mutually exclusive, but they're not. We start with that, and then we scaffold the executive function skills needed for students to participate, the richer project-based open-ended learning. So we're essentially supporting their ability to participate in it through the direct instruction and 
executive function scaffolds and then hopefully because it's scaffolding those things get pulled away as they practice and participate i think that's a lovely approach we and you know and in most schools they they're starting to talk more about executive functioning skills and social emotional learning and i think a lot of schools may shy away from students with accommodations from taking computer science that it's too much and we keep saying no these kids these kids can do it this this is it this is we can do this and then also with my kids being my kids are bilingual i often see them not necessarily doing hard coding but they do take coding in in lower school grades and i find that they kind of pick it up quicker it's like a third language for them so i'm i was just I'm always interested to read more about that and see if if there's some sort of correlation through students and people who can speak multiple languages and whether they can go on to code more. And then it was even there's more of a highlight when I saw the uh, Charlas at PyCon was what such amazing opportunity and how they were coding in you know, you never really think about this. They're coding in English and speaking in mm-hmm. Spanish. Well, and so it's just all this great interesting things that happen. Yeah, the concept of translanguaging is about acknowledging all of the students' language abilities in multiple languages, visual, gesture, all all different aspects of their language abilities and considering code to be one of those aspects and leveraging those strengths. That's amazing. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about that as, as the education system starts going deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole of computer science and coding. I hope to see a lot more studies. Hopefully you'll keep us posted <laughs> if For you sure. find out more. For sure. Nice. You know, one of the things we wanted to build on here was why computer science or what's unique about computer science and the content that we teach, the, you know, the way that we teach it that makes it so conducive to learning about learning. Is it because it's a newer profession? Is it because we're all a bit of misfits in computer science and we're always challenging the status quo? Are there things that you've seen or you've researched that say, this is why computer science may be more uniquely suited for learning about how we each learn? Sure. I mean, I have a couple different opinions that are, I don't, they're not research backed, they're just opinions. One is just, it's practical. It's that computer science isn't tested yet. We have more freedom as teachers of computer science at the moment than say an English language arts teacher or a math teacher who you know, is really stressing about those state tests at the end of the year or has specific standards they have to hit. There are CS standards, but a lot of times they're more open as far as which ones you could choose to hit within a certain time frame. So one is that just the practicality of that freedom. The other, like, I guess this is kind of counterintuitive if you think about how computer science has sometimes been taught. But if you look at it from the perspective of what industry is asking for and the skills, sort of 21st century skills, right, that they, that are needed. It's actually very collaborative. It's actually very like, there are entrepreneurial possibilities, things like that. It's not just, can you get this line of code right? At least that's not what employers are saying that they want. And I, I personally, I don't believe that we're teaching computer science for the job market. I I think we should teach it to every student regardless of what they want to do. But I think that influences how it's taught. For example, when I started out, I was like, oh, I'm going to make this classroom more like a studio workshop and I'm going to set it up 
set up the workspaces in the style of a Google workspace so that students can collaborate and have more freedom to walk around, to try things out. So I know I was influenced by that and I think other teachers are as well. I, I, I'm looking around our classroom and saying, yeah, I think that was kind of what we were shooting for also, you know, that ability to be flexible and co collaborative and creative. And I think that's something that may be surprising to a lot of people is just how creative computer science can be. That it really can leverage your imagination more than anything else when it's done, you know, when it's employed properly, right? It's the power of your mind. So I can certainly relate to your second point about we are influenced heavily by these larger tech companies that are placing so much emphasis on creativity, collaboration, people skills, and it's it's shining through in a lot of classrooms that I've seen uh, around in terms of you know the spaces that we create for learning. Yeah. And also, if you add in the maker movement and this idea of digital making, I think that only enhances it. Yeah, I was actually having a, a conversation with a, another parent earlier this week about maker spaces, and he said, well, there really feels a lot like you know shop class from 30 years ago. And I said, yeah, it's shop 2.0, right? We've made it digital. We've added coding to it. We've included more than woodworking or metalworking now we're incorporating textile arts we're incorporating paint and art it's really a you know very creative multidisciplinary expression and computer science is a very vital part of that and that's one of the most fun things in our job i think is is the fact that we're making things every day we're not learning about making we're actually making and that's a lot of fun yeah, and speaking about making and projects i kind of want to shift gears i want to i want to dive into Codesters is is that okay when we talk about Codesters? I really yeah. want to I really want to know more about I know that Codesters is a is a coding platform for students. I see you know it has a um, a classroom page and a and a list of modules I guess that you can yeah. go through and you help to code you help to design that the Python course is that correct? The curriculum, yeah. The curriculum, yeah. Tell us about that. That's so interesting. Sure. So Codesters is an ed tech company in New York City. They wanted to develop a learning platform for middle school students. They've used Python. They have created an online learning space where they're able, it's like Scratch, in that they're able to visually show that, so they put in the Python and then there's a visual representation right away. Mm. They use a library called Sculpt that sort of builds everything with JavaScript under the hood in order to achieve that. And they wanted to transition students from blocks to text. So the students can actually select a block and drag the block into the coding space. And when they let go of the block, it becomes a line of Python that is then editable. Gordon Smith, the um, CEO of that company, really put a lot of emphasis on user-centered design. And he went into classrooms, he sent his engineers into classrooms from the very start and got extensive feedback from teachers from the very start and would iterate based on their feedback. This is why I was very excited to be involved with it because I haven't seen an ed tech company work that closely with teachers before. It was really great. I had the opportunity to work on the curriculum and direct curriculum for them. You know, we have curriculum that's more game design oriented and then we have fundamentals of Python and they go from like strings and in integers 
all the way uh, through creating classes and functions and all of that. That's interesting. I just came into the this afternoon before the before our meeting, and I said to Sean, I said, I know what I'm going to do next year. I'm going to change it all around. And I think that's one of the other things that we talk about a lot um, when we have our talks is the curriculum and what we feel is the best curriculum for how we teach Python. And I think as teachers, we all have our own way of teaching, but most of the time we're given either a book or a set of standards or a set of objectives that we have to follow. And from that, we can backwards by design and plan out our units as we go. I think when you come into computer science, you're given projects and they're like, here, they want to create something. How, where do we go? How do we teach? Do you have any philosophy or advice for teachers on building a curriculum or giving them, you know, not necessarily building a whole curriculum by themselves, but, you know, just where they should go or how they should feel it out? Sure. I mean, I do think that's a big challenge that you touched on. As teachers, we are given these projects or we go to websites where it says, oh, there's all these education resources. But what those resources are is a project that's done. What I think people outside of education don't understand is that that's not a curriculum or or a lesson or anything close to it. And especially for in-service teachers who are just learning to teach computer science, they may not be equipped to take that project and, like you said, backwards plan and make it into a unit that's standards aligned. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, like you said, okay, we've defined the problem. I'm not sure that I have a great solution for it. I think there's a lot more curriculum coming out with an understanding of this. I think for teachers, starting with, maybe you do start with a more prepared or boxed curriculum. Mm-hmm. But with the idea that you're not going to just put a computer in front of students and say, okay, follow the tutorial. But even as you're learning, how can you still be in charge of the classroom and the learning? How can you frame this for them? How can you give them context? How can you make sure that they're really achieving all the depth of knowledge levels and not just following and typing what they're told to type? How can you actively be involved? And then as you gain experience, letting yourself be more creative, maybe you have a project idea based on your experiences that you want to incorporate and just very gradually going from that canned curriculum and and then building on your ability and your agency as a teacher to make your own uh, projects and lessons. And I think that's great advice. I think that's one of the things that Sean and I have done. He came in with a, a lot of knowledge on on coding and the way to complete projects. And I came in with this more of, you've got to set the question, you have to have the objective, what's your pedagogy? And we kind of mashed it together. I think we both found that we, as computer science teacher, have centered our teaching on skills and it sounds something similar to what you did we've kind of put everything else on the sideline there's strings there's variables there's functions there are projects and there's micro all this stuff but we're going to focus it on design challenges 20 percent time projects how do you google how do you ask the right question and just recently i started taking michael kennedy's 10 apps course Mm -hmm. i don't know if you've taken that and i just came in and i said i've got it. I know how I'm going to start my course next year. I'm going to do the way that he defines his, his apps. And so I think as we go along, we keep mutating 
to try to find the best fit. And it will be interesting the day that someone says, oh, here's your box of curriculum and you just open it up and voila, everyone is that 21st century learner now. <laughs> It'll be great yeah. <laughs> one day. <laughs> yeah. yeah I, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's most fun about teaching computer science is that there is no gold standard curriculum yet, right? There are gold standard outcomes. There are things that we're shooting for. We, you know, we are shooting for those 21st century skills, but the approach that we took this year with creating a curriculum chassis, right? So it's like something that is our, our foundation for all the learning that we're doing. This is the structure that holds it all together. And then exploring new ways to teach, new lesson plans, new projects, new tactics, new you know, little bits of, of knowledge that we've acquired and added back to that has been a good approach. And I'm lucky enough to have Kelly who knows how to structure the curriculum and provide that chassis. And I can go do the Let's the try magic. these ideas. Yeah, I don't know about magic, but the, the iteration, right? I can go do the iterative approach to let's try this piece and see if we can improve it and make it better. And if you don't have a Kelly, you know, where, where do you have that chassis? And I, I think that's where there's the, the resources um, become important. Where can you find established curriculum? Where can you find standards that may not be perfect, but it may be a good starting place that you can use to build your own teaching you know, your own lessons, your own plans, your own projects. I think that that's such great advice to have, you know, something to start with, but don't treat it as the, you know, the dusty old tome of here's what we're going to, to learn from today. Yeah, I really believe teachers matter. It matters for a student to have a skilled teacher. Even if that teacher is learning the curriculum, it, it makes a difference just going on like a Khan Academy tutorial versus having a teacher that has some knowledge of pedagogy and education to guide you through that, it makes a huge difference. It's important. And I think, I think one of the things that is great about Python and great about you know, many teachers getting into Python now as a, as a language is that it is accessible, right? There's a lot of things that you can do with it. It's, it's the full spectrum language for, for programming, but you don't have to be the wise guru for your students that knows everything about Python. You just have to be the learner that's two steps ahead of the, where they are, right? Be that lead learner, the one who's guiding everyone, who's saying, you know, come with me, let's figure this out together. And what I've found in my experience is I, it gives me the opportunity to role model le good learning practices. It gives me the opportunity to demonstrate how to deal with failure, right? Oh, that didn't work. Let's try something else. It gives it makes it more interesting and engaging for me because I'm always learning new things and I can share that enthusiasm for learning with my students. So this whole area is such a great way and you don't have to pretend like you know it all. In fact, it's better to be vulnerable, to be the learner along with your students and guide them. And that so far this year has worked really well and it's amazing the amount of trust that students will place in you when they see that you don't know it all and that you're willing to work with them to figure it out. Yeah, I, I think though Python has to have a little warning label because I've been going around this entire year telling everyone, no, you need to learn Python. It's your, you have to learn Python. It's totally addicting. You have to learn Python. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I started off not thinking I was going to love it. And now it's become an obsession, as many people at our school now know about us. <laughs> so switching gears again, and I hate to do this, but we're short on time. And it takes, it'll take Sean a while to edit, if not. But I really want to know about your book. Oh, sure. How, congratulations um, on a book. <laughs> thank you. 
just on a personal note, I had my first baby and <gasps> wrote my first book in the same year. Oh, that that is a huge, huge accomplishment. Congratulations. Thank you. So, uh, yeah, I'm still recovering from that. It's, it's been a big year. So it's called Code This Game. And I had the opportunity to take everything I've learned about teaching Python in a project-based model and put that into a book that goes directly, hopefully, to kids. It's for ages 10 to 14. 10 is more like, oh, you have a supportive parent at home who's going to work through with you. And 14 is like, hey, I haven't had any exposure to this, and I, I might want to take an AP class, or I just want to see what it's all about. So it introduces kids to Python through building a complete game, which is pretty ambitious for, for the readers and for me. Along the way, it introduces them. It hits on a lot of the computer science concepts and standards because I wanted students not just to learn, okay, here's some lines of code and how you do this, but to really help them understand what is software? What is happening when I type, when I make my Python file? I find the command line extremely, for me, it was confusing to learn. It took me a long time to wrap my head around, more, longer than I would like to admit. And it's also been very elusive to teach. So I've done a lot of thinking about how to introduce that to kids. And that's all in there. And then just using Pygame to let them be creative and have this philosophy of, here's how you build it. Now don't be afraid to go break it and make it your own. Well, I think that's my, my favorite part about your book, actually, because there are many game, many books out there across a variety of languages that promise you that you can make your own computer game. But I love the fact that the next thing you say is now go break it because it's not like we're breaking priceless artifacts. It's just code. And if you break it, like you'll learn more from breaking it and trying to figure out how it works than you will from making it in the first place. And that's what really sets it apart in, in my eyes in terms of the approach is that it makes it okay to mess with it, to tinker with it, to take it apart and see how it works like an old toaster. Yeah. Unplugged old toaster for the, for the don't try this at home people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I really like that. How did, how did that um, kind of break it idea come through when you were writing the book? How did, how did that come through as being so important? Well, it started because, let's face it, Students, if they're like, I want to make a video game, they want to make Call of Duty, like, tomorrow. <laughs> and, and that's just not going to happen. Whatever game they make is not going to be that cool because they're just learning. Just like the first, you know, words that they write aren't going to be Shakespeare, right? So I wanted to think about how can this be worth their while? How can it be creative and engaging if they can't write Shakespeare yet? I wanted to find a structure that would give them the opportunity and the freedom to do something that's their own, but to also be really guided so that it's not left to just figure it out. I think that kind of almost goes on to that approach with how Scratch and MIT had set up their Scratch, where there was a lot of guided projects, sort of learning from someone and being able to hack, hack someone else's code and just get in there. We find a lot of the kids come in there into our classroom and our elective class and they say, I've got this Unity game. How can I, how can I make a game for, for the VR? And I, what? 
let's start small. Let's get the ball rolling across the table first before we start designing something for the TV. So we're we're really excited about that this aspect of your book. Awesome, thank you. What was what was the part that was the most fun about writing the book? I'm sure there were a lot of parts that were not fun late at night writing, debugging, reviewing. But what was the part that, that you'll take away from this, from the process of writing it, that was the most memorable or most interesting uh, lesson that you learned from it? Sure. I think for me, it was just to take all the years of teaching Python and all those iterations and refinements of how I teach it and a lot of the thinking about how to teach it and debating about how to teach it and being able to take those lessons learned and distill it and say, this is a whole different way than most people teach Python or approach coding uh, for new students and new learners. And to be able to put it into a text and share it was really exciting. Well, I, I know it's coming out in August. At least that's what Amazon's telling me. Um, yes. Is there any place where people can get it earlier or if they wanted to learn more about the book, where should they go to find out more about it? Uh, yeah, so they can go so it's on Amazon. They can go to odd.com, O-D-D-D-O-T, odd.com, <laughs> slash code this game, or just go to odd. and it's there. All right. Nice. Uh, we will put that in the show notes uh, for everyone to take a look at it. Um, awesome. We want to give you an, an opportunity to ask us questions. If there was anything that, that you were curious about to make this more conversational and not us just throwing <laughs> questions at you uh, for the conversation. But is there anything uh, that you'd like to know from us or any questions that you had for us that we could answer for you? Yeah, I actually think it's so unique and neat that you have this co-teaching model of somebody with a technology programming background and somebody with an education background. It's like the dream, I feel like, though not very scalable. <laughs> but I would love to hear how that came about and kind of what you think of that as you've done it for a year now. So I'll take this. The story started before Sean. <laughs> <laughs> At Pinecrest, where we teach, we we're, we always try to stay on the, the cusp and try to get in, in front of the things with the curriculum-wise or with at least the movement of the rest of, of the world. And there was a lot of investigation of rewriting our curriculum. My previous teaching partner was leaving and I was teaching robotics and also helping in the classroom. I'm an educational specialist, a, a push-in teacher who designs curriculum and helps with project-based learning and does a, I do a lot of PBL units with, with our teachers here. And my boss told me that I was going to teach Python. And I looked at her and I said, she's crazy. I can't teach Python. And we searched a lot. We had a lot of great candidates come and we saw Sean in the way that he was very passionate about his projects that he does at home. He built a, he's still building and currently iterating and iterating and iterating. His wife is probably upset, but working on a pool heater sensor, correct? Thermometer yep. sensor, yep. <laughs> monitor, and we, he was just able to go with the flow he had never taught before. And he actually had his first teaching demo class during a lockdown scenario. And he handled it so well. It was un, we didn't know it was going to happen. And we just, we just really appreciated his, his ability to go with the flow and answer the questions and, and bring code to life. And so it's been a great, it's been a great year. 
Well, you want for to me, add to that? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, I hadn't really considered being a teacher until a little over a year ago. I had a career in IT and marketing, and I still do consulting in that in that area. Uh, my daughter started at Pinecrest uh, two years ago now. I had a very good friend of mine who had been teaching for 30 plus years in early childhood education. And she said to me, she said, you, you have something special in terms of your ability to work with kids and help them understand what you're talking about, even if it's something very complicated. They seem to grasp it. They seem to like the process of learning with you. She's like, I think you'd be a very good teacher. And she said, I, I would highly recommend if you get a, if there's a position open to look at teaching at your daughter's school, see if there's an opportunity there because she said, I think you'd be really good at it. I think you'd love doing it. And having maybe a tuition discount or something like that would also be, would be nice. And so I looked into it and every step along the way, everything seems to fall in place. They were looking for you know, people with a computer science background, they were looking for technologists, they wanted and valued my outside experience because I could bring some perspective that, that not many other people had or were willing to share with middle schoolers. So I came in and it was terrifying, right? Um, you know, the first day when, when you're teaching a class and, it's, and you've got your lesson, and I'm sure you know, teachers remember this, but as, a, as an established professional to be staring down a room of sixth and eighth graders and they're all looking to me to teach them was a little intimidating at first. But what I've found along the way over the course of this year is that it's fun. It is a fun thing to do. It is fulfilling. I, you can build relationships with the students that helps them grow and develop as people and as learners. And to see that kind of growth happen in such a short amount of time, you know, in the space of weeks is just incredible. And I don't think people really understand everything that goes into the art and craft of teaching. I also don't think they realize how amazing it is to watch students grow and develop to be able to see that happen before your eyes. It is really powerful. I have enjoyed this first year so much that I'm, of course, coming back next year. So I guess it, it's worked. But it's also been a really great partnership. And, and that was the thing that helped me get, get going and get started this year, was knowing that I had really good support from Kelly as my teaching partner with such a great background in curriculum design and teaching and, and education, as well as strong support from my colleagues in the middle school and my administrators have been really great about supporting me and giving me room to run with guidance and support. So that partnership has worked out really well and we recognize that it's a fairly unique situation. We don't always teach the same classes. You know, we're, we have, we're lead teachers for different sections and everything, but we do find that sometimes it, it works really well to be able to say, hey, can you teach this part? Or can you explain this? Or can you help me design this part? Um, that ability to go to someone who understands the question that you're asking and can point you in the right direction is hugely helpful. And so one of the reasons why we started this podcast was we recognize that this is unique. We have different perspectives that not everyone else does. And the best way to share that perspective with others was to create something where we could talk and make it you know a conversation where p other people could join in and participate no matter where they were sitting even if it's you know a rural school school in kentucky or india or wherever they can have access in some way to the 
situation that we have here with, with two very different teachers with different backgrounds working together, they can be a part of that and hopefully they're getting something from that to enhance their teaching or coding. Well, I love it. I think it's such a great model and with computer science being a new subject for many schools, it, I think leveraging this technologist and educator um, kind of partnership is great and I am often trying to build a bridge because it feels like the two communities speak different languages, <laughs> but there are so many programmers I've met who are really passionate and excited about education and they want to contribute and it's like, how do we, how do we bridge this so that both sides can benefit? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's, it is something that is great. Sean pushes me a lot. Every, every week I seem to have a different kit or board or microprocessor <laughs> on my desk. I remember the first time he gave me the, uh, wasn't the Game Boy, but the Pie Girl. And he says, here, you're going to build this. And I looked at it and said, no, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> and now I'm onto wearables. So I think you need that. And I think when you find that special uh, mentorship within your school, you can pretty much take it wherever you want. Both of us are people that constantly like to challenge ourselves and do the things that people say that we can't. For example, next year we're changing it up. I'm going to teach sixth grade. He's going to teach some seventh grade. You know, why, why stick to something we just figured out this year? We might have changed it up again. So it's that, that, that natural pushiness. And I think that's something that comes in with people who like to code. And that's why we try to tell you, if you have that desire to to always better yourself, to always learn more than you are a person that can do computer science or to code and to have fun. So I think that's great. And I think that's what keeps everyone in the PyCon community um, so connected because we all want to learn more. Absolutely. So are we, we're pushing think... a very long episode because <laughs> I think we could talk to Meg all, I mean, <laughs> when I was reading your story, we were just so excited about hearing things from you. I love what you do. I loved how you, you at your talk at PyCon this year, just a nice feeling to know that there are educators out there like us who have that passion of pedagogy as well. It's a good feeling. And it made it a very comfortable experience at PyCon knowing that there were other people like me there. So thank you for that. I just wanted to thank you for that keynote. Awesome. I'm so glad it was meaningful and likewise for this podcast. So thanks. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Good. Well, we're, uh, we're going to sign off and I'm going to work diligently at getting this edited and online in a reasonable amount of time. But Meg, it was a pleasure having you on the podcast with us. We really hope we can do it again soon. I guess you have to write another book or, or something so that we have a good reason to bring you back on. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will make sure that we post a link to your PyCon keynote in our show notes, as well as a link to your book on Amazon so people can pre-order it. Um, we'll also give a link to the Odd Dot website so people can jump in with both feet. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly. Signing, Signing off. off.